for every one of us, there will be a point in time when we will have to confront an Esau. Are you familiar with the story of Jacob and Esau? From the time that they were in utero, Jacob gave Esau fits. And I know some of you are maybe wondering about your own brothers and sisters. But the truth is, is that from even that point, Jacob gave Esau fits. Uh, Jacob eventually stole something very important from Esau that he could never recover and regain. And back in chapter 27, verse 41, uh, Esau threatened to kill Jacob. Jacob went on. He was gone for 20 years, and he's returning home, and he's got to pass through the territory that Esau rules. And he's afraid of confronting Esau again. Have you ever had an Esau that you had to confront? I remember probably the first Esau I was aware of was my junior year in high school when it occurred to me I was not good enough to play baseball beyond high school. I wasn't going to play professional baseball. I, was, I couldn't spell professional with my talents and abilities. I wasn't even going to play college ball. I might be able to make a college team where they didn't cut anybody. Okay, but uh, beyond that, I just wasn't going to do it. And so my lifelong dream of, uh, dream of playing ball, at least in college, was gone. That was the first Esau, and it broke my heart. It led to the greatest change in my life, though, and I'll tell you about that at the end. Uh, I met another Esau when I pastored and moved to Alabama to pastor there. I learned that a church member, after being there a few weeks, I learned that a church member ran a convenience store and was selling pornography in the convenience store. And we had covenanted with one another at our church not to do such things. Not to make money off of things that destroyed souls and not to make money off of things that uh, divided marriages and families and contributed to the corruption of souls. And then to make money off of it and claim to be a member of our church. We, we just weren't going to act that way. We were going to have integrity. And the church had had a terrible reputation in the community for many years, had declined in many, many ways, and had really, really struggled with its image in the community because of things like this. And let me say real quickly, if you're struggling with pornography, you're in the right place today. We want you here, and there is hope. You don't have to struggle forever. There is hope, and Jesus Christ can help you, and we'll be glad to walk with you through that. So you're in the right place. But uh, the truth is, is that uh, no Christian should ever profit over anything that destroys souls, marriages, and families. And that's what was taking place. And so I learned about it. I said, God, I've been here at this church for three weeks. And already this has come up. I'll deal with it. I'll address it. I'll talk with this member and encourage them to change their mind. And all these conversations I have like that are very gentle. They're pastoral, but they're very clear. We're going to have integrity in our confession of faith. And if we've covenanted to be part of a church, we're going to live by it. We're, we're, we're not going to be hypocritical and we're not going to be inconsistent. But uh, anyway, I prayed about it. I gave God and said, God, if, if you will, Lord, handle this problem without me being involved, I'm going to pray about it for a month. I'm going to ask others to pray about it as well without mentioning the details. And in a month, I'll go deal with it. Well, there was the convenience store where the pornography was being sold. And next door, the owner of the convenience store cut hair. Back in the days when I had some, I would go there. And so... Uh, that's where on my first trip to, the, to that place, I learned he was selling pornography. And so I went a month later to get my hair cut, and um, uh, I went through the store first to see. Well, what's interesting is his wife absolutely hated selling that, but he wouldn't change his mind. He was stubborn. 
Well, they were Alabama fans, so they'd cover it with Auburn paraphernalia. That's what they do. And uh, so I went to get my hair cut, and before I could open my mouth, Virgil said to me, Preacher, I've got some good news. We have sold the store, and we're going to be out in a month. We're getting out of this business, and we're going to rededicate ourselves to Christ and His church. I said, well, look, take a little off the side right here, right here. God fixed the problem as a result of prayer. Jacob had a similar instance here in Genesis 32 and Genesis 33. He's returning back to the land, and he cries out to God to fix the problem between he and Esau. It had been boiling, bubbling, and blazing for 20 years. And look at the result in chapter 33. Chapter 33. Jacob comes upon Esau, and out in the middle of the wilderness, they meet each other. And in verse 4, it says, But Esau ran to meet him, and embraced him, and fell on his neck, and kissed him, and they wept. Oh, there was marvelous reconciliation here. Now, I want to do two things with this story today. I want to examine it, then I want to apply it. So let's look first at examination of the story. The first part of it is, is that Jacob wanders. In chapter 32, verses 1 and 2, he enters back into the region and he happens upon a military encampment of angels in verses 1 and 2, which is a signal that God is already intervened and active in working on his behalf. And that's what he finds in verses 1 and 2. Uh, so he wonders, but then he worries. He worries. He hears that Esau is coming his way and he panics because he's coming with 400 men. That's larger than most militias and most armies that they would use in that day. And the first thing he thinks about is, 20 years ago I robbed my brother and now he's coming after, with me, after me with a larger than average army. And so he worries and panics. Now in the middle of that, he cries out to God and he prays and uh, struggles and strives and strains through prayer. And he does the right thing. And we'll look at that a little bit later. But he is panicked and he is worried. So uh, Jacob ends up worrying. And then he wrestles. He wrestles. He gets off alone with his family. And in the middle of the night, God comes to him, first appearing as a man, then appearing as an angel. And then finally, Jacob concludes that this is actually God, and God wrestles with him and puts his hip out of joint. Now, isn't that just like God? Right before you need to run, he puts your hip out of joint. But it's the greatest thing that ever happened to him because he quit depending upon his abilities, and he depended upon God. G. Campbell Morgan called this the crippling that crowns. And that's what happened to Jacob in that time. And God changed him in those moments as he's wrestling with God. We'll look in a little more detail a little bit later at that. So he wrestles, but then Jacob also wins. We just read that in chapter 33. The animosity is gone. The hatred is gone. The difficulty is gone. Somehow or another, and the text does not explain, God has erased murder from Esau's heart and life, and Jacob wins. That's precisely what happens. And then finally, not only does he win, but then Jacob's not a perfect man. He ends up wobbling. He obeys God enough to move beyond Esau and go to where he needs to go, but he doesn't go all the way. He ends up residing in a land that was not Bethel, that was not the promised land. Eventually he gets there, but he was right in obeying God to separate from Esau 
Because Esau is a pagan, he does not need to be influencing Jacob's sons, one of whom is Levi, who'd become the founder of the tribe of the Levites that would handle the tabernacle and temple. And the other one is his son Judah, who becomes King David and his family, who becomes Mary, who becomes Jesus Christ. He doesn't need that kind of influence. Listen, you need to understand, Jacob needed the intervention of God The world needed the intervention of God in these moments because without a Jacob, there is no Jesus Christ. This is one of the most critical but overlooked sections of the entire Bible. Without a Jacob, there is no Jesus. If God had not changed Esau's heart, if God had not changed Esau's heart, if he had murdered Jacob, that ends up being the entire nation of Israel because Jacob gave birth to the, uh, fathered the 12 sons uh, that became the nation of Israel, one of whom was Judah, from whom Jesus Christ comes. If there's no Jacob, there is no Jesus Christ. It is critical that God intervenes. And when Esau, when Jacob thought Esau was getting in his way, he handles it a certain way. Now, what we learn from this is that Jacob's biggest meeting in the text was not with Esau, his biggest meeting was with God. And whenever Esau gets in your way, whatever your Esau is, your biggest meeting is not with the Esau. Your biggest meeting is with God Almighty and to deal with him. It it, it may be a disappointment and loss of a dream that's your Esau. It, It may be a challenge where your integrity is being challenged and you've got to make a tough decision. It, it, it could be an addiction. It, it, it could be some kind of sinful habit. It could be a relationship God wants you to get out of. It could be a variety of things. But your biggest meeting, your biggest meeting is not with it. Like Jacob, your biggest meeting is with God. And thank God you can meet him in Jesus Christ. What good news. Well, how is it then that I meet with God? How can I affect this meeting? How can it happen in my life. Well, the text directs us to several verbs that will help us with this. First, speak in God's Word. Now, when Jacob is panicking, Jacob still has enough presence of mind to think through the Word of God. Back in chapter 28, God gave him some promises that became Scripture. And now, 20 years later, he is thinking through the Word. So he is panicking. He is upset. He is swimming in anxiety, and yet he's got the presence of mind enough to think through God's Word. Verse 9 of chapter 32, Then Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, the Lord who said to me, Return to your country, to your family, and I will deal well with you. In other words, God, you told me to come back this way. I'm in this mess because I'm obeying you. I'm in trouble because I'm obeying you. Please remember that. As you decide what you're going to do, God, remember, I am here because I have obeyed you. And then he goes on in verse 10. I'm not worthy of the least of all the mercies and all the truth which you've shown your servant. For I crossed over this Jordan with my staff. All I had was a walking stick, and now I've become two companies. I'm as large as two households. In other words, you have blessed me remarkably. So right now... I am in the trouble I'm in. I'm facing the trouble I'm facing because I'm obeying you. And I've also got a history with you, God. I put up with that nasty, dirty, manipulative, conniving Laban, and look what's happened. I showed up with him and all of his abuse. 
I showed up with a walking stick, and now I've got a family that's the size of two families. I've got a history. You've been good to me. And then he goes on to say uh, in verse 11, Deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him lest he come and attack me and the mother with the children. For you said, Lord, I will surely treat you well, make your descendants as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for a multitude. This is a repetition of the word God gave him in Genesis chapter 28, verses 13 through 15, and chapter 31, verse 13. Head on back. So Jacob is obeying God, he's obeying the scripture, and it influences his vision and prayers. Listen to me, whenever Esau gets in your way, you're going to be tempted to fear. You're going to be tempted to define your future in terms of your fear. That's what's going to happen. You're going to let fear define your future if you're not careful. I like what I learned at a youth camp many years ago about fear, an acronym for fear. Fear, when it comes to the child of God, is often false evidence appearing real. And fear will insist that you pay attention to it. Fear will insist that you submit to it. Fear will insist that you take it seriously. And God said it's often false evidence appearing real. Ladies and gentlemen, your fears are not to define your vision, your future, or your prayers. God's Word is to take the role. God's Word, especially His promises, end up defining your future and your vision. In other words, what's going to happen is precisely what God said will happen in His Word. That's what's going to happen. Now, whenever I go through a struggle, whenever I go through a time, I start thinking through some Bible verses. Here's some common ones that I oftentimes rehearse and think through. Psalms 84, verse 11. No good thing will He withhold from those who walk upright before Him. No good thing. Well, wait, I'm not upright. If you come into Jesus Christ, Jesus shares His uprightness with you. He makes you upright so you can claim that. All the promises of God are yes and amen in Him. I know you're not righteous. I'm not either. But I come before God with that promise, claiming the righteousness of Christ. So that one is for me. Psalms 84, 11. No good thing will He withhold from those who walk upright before Him. And so that's one verse. Another verse, Matthew 7, 7, unequivocally, Jesus said, ask, it shall be given to you. Now, I know we're to praise the Lord and we're to thank Him and we're to pray for others, but the New Testament emphasizes that prayer is asking God for things and we glorify Him in that way. And He says, haul off and ask. Ask anything in my will. Ask anything that conforms to my name and I'm going to come through. And so I come to the Father and I say, no good thing you'll withhold from those who are upright before you, and I'm in Christ. And, and dear God, um, you said, ask, it shall be given. Seek, you shall find. Knock, the door shall be open. It goes on in verse 11, that same chapter, and says, if you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your Father give good gifts to those who ask Him? What a marvelous promise. So I bring that before God as well and, and uh, to define my future. And then uh, John 14, 12, greater works than these shall you do because I go to the Father. Jesus said, uh, not in quality but quantity, a greater number of works you shall do as compared to mine because I go to the Father and the Holy Spirit will come down. In other words, there's the opportunity to do a great work for God. There's never been a task that has been set before me in my Christian life or ministry where God couldn't come through if I trusted Him. John 14, 12. And, and hey, there's more. It gets better. Uh, Romans 10, 9, and 13. 
I claim this that evening I realized I wasn't playing baseball for the rest of my life or much of my adult life. Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And we're going to give you a chance to do that today at the end of the message. To take Jesus Christ as Lord, to admit he is God, he's risen, I trust him for my salvation, I'm calling on God to save me. That's what I did that night. These promises then, listen, these promises define the future my fears do not. So we speak in God's Word. So God's Word is more real and definitive and determinative than any fear I've ever had about the future. So when Esau gets in your way, speak in God's Word. Second, not only speak in God's Word, but strain for God's power. Now, I want to make it real clear to you. You've got to understand this, and this is so easy to misunderstand, especially if you're not close to the Lord right now. Listen to me. Christianity is not a matter of working hard to get better. That is not the Christian faith. That is a substitute birthed out of the bowels of hell. Listen to me. Christianity is not giving your best effort to get better, to do better, to try harder. It's not do better. It's not try harder. Christianity is trust Him more. That's what Christianity is. And by faith, God intervenes and changes your heart and life. And He'd do that today. Hey, you may have walked in here as miserable as you can be, brokenhearted as you can be. And if you weren't, you were by the time the sermon started, okay? You may not have walked in here with an awful lot of confidence to approach God, but I've got good news for you. You can't get better. You're not going to do better, at least in a measure to uh, please God, but God can save you and cleanse you as if there's nothing in your past over which to be ashamed. God can do it because Jesus has bled and there is remission, and the Father accepted what he did at the cross and raised him from the dead. You can be new before God and new throughout life and new throughout eternity because of Jesus Christ. So you don't do better. You don't try harder. You trust Him more. And when you trust Him more, that's what makes the difference and that's what takes place in this text. So you strain for that power is what you look for. And, and you do. You strain in your faith. Um, you, you strain for privacy. Look at verse 24. Look what happens here. Then Jacob was left alone. One of the problems some people have when they face their Esau is that they never get alone with God. Uh, they have always got a screen in front of them, or they've always got a person next to them, or they've got some kind of human connection that squelches out the voice of God. Whenever you're facing an Esau, whatever it may be, you've got to find some time to be alone with God. And let me say to you, you'll never regret it. I've been doing it on a daily basis for more than 37 years, and God has been faithful to come and meet in that moment. Strain to be alone, then strain in perseverance. Verse 26, look what happened. Let's just read the story here, and let's begin in verse 24. Then Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. Now when he saw that he did not prevail against him, when the man couldn't prevail against Jacob, the man touched the socket of Jacob's hip. And the socket of Jacob's hip was out of joint as he wrestled with him. And Jacob kept wrestling. 
I mean, he's broke the poor fellow's hip and he's still wrestling with him. And he said, let me go for the day breaks. But he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. You persevere with God. You struggle, strive, and strain until God comes through and changes you. Until he does something to your heart and he does something to your life. And so you persevere. And then you've got to have some humility when it comes to faith. So he said to him, what's your name? Now that's like saying, tell me your history. A name represented character. And if I were to mention some names to you today, uh, you would think not merely of the name, you would think of character, right? Um, I could mention the name of your best friend. And you would think of all the lovely times and moments that you've spent with your best friend. There's something about the character that uh, is represented and appears in a name. If I were to say the name Hitler, for example, well, it's real clear. That's a nasty name. Uh, We don't even name our dogs Hitler, all right? Um, Then uh, there are uh, a variety of other names that I could mention. I could mention Billy Graham, and that is integrity and gospel ministry. And and so I, I could mention presidents' names, and you would think of certain behaviors and acts and those kinds of things. Well, whenever this man... Ask, uh, ask Jacob, what is your name? He's saying, tell me your character. Tell me your history. And subdued, I think Jacob said, Jacob. Jacob means trickster, deceiver. Literally, the one who grabs the heel and trips people up, which is precisely what he did in the womb to Esau. Ever since he was in utero, he's been tripping up his brother, deceiving and scheming. Jacob comes to the point here then where he says, I'm a Jacob. He gets honest and discovers later, once he gets honest, that he's not really wrestling with a man. He's wrestling with God. And God plays with him some. Breaks his hip, but plays with him some as well and allows him to continue through the early hours of the morning almost to daylight. And look at what happens in verse 28. Your name shall no longer be called Jacob or trickster or deceiver or the one who trips up at the heel, but Israel. God fights for you. And that's going to be your story. That's going to be your history. And the power of this name change prevails even today. You look at Israel's history since 1947 and 1948, they've not lost a battle at all. It's remarkable what has happened. 422 million come against a handful of Israelis and they wiped them out back in the late 60s. And so he set the course for Israel by setting it for Jacob and changing his name. And that change was so powerful, it prevails in that nation today. So there is a tremendous need then to come before God and to seek God's power until you've got it and until you have changed. Listen, there is some grunt work that goes with faith and trusting God. There is some grunt work that goes with it. There's some perspiration. There is some sweat. Once you come to know Christ as Savior, once He forgives your sins, then you continue with him and you express this in that way. Uh, It's kind of like eating your vegetables. 
When we were kids, many of us didn't like them, but they're still good for us. And that's how this is as well. Well, there's a third thing that we do as well, and that is we submit to God's commands. Now, in chapter 33, verses 12 through 20, Jacob submits to one command, but he doesn't submit to another. And the great disaster of chapter 34 comes about, which we'll look at on Wednesday night. But Jacob partially obeyed God. He partially submitted to God's commands. He did not do so fully. And by doing so partially, at least obeying one command, there was great blessing that came from it, but, not by, but by failing to obey all the commands, he ended up struggling. Listen, I've got to remind us often that the Christian life is not like a buffet where you get to pick and choose what you want from God. You've got to embrace everything there is of God, everything there is of Him. Christians do not get to pick and choose what they want from God. They've got to take the blood, the book, and the blessed hope of Jesus Christ. They've got to take the holiness and the purity and righteousness of God. They've got to take the generosity and the church-centered commitment to Jesus Christ and His mission. Everything is on the table, and the Christian says, Oh God, I will obey you. I embrace it all. I will take it all. Because... Partial obedience is still disobedience. Everything has got to be obeyed. So Jacob starts well, but he doesn't finish well. Victory over the Esau comes about when we have the power of God, and it comes with obedience to him, and it's simultaneous. Now, you need to know something about God's commands. They're not arbitrary. They're not silly. They're not irrelevant. They fit life. It reminds me of um, a friend I had in seminary. We were roommates. He talked about how his father was pretty independent-minded, which is a nice way of saying stubborn, when he was a boy. And he was looking at a stove, and his mother had a cast-iron skillet on the stove with the flame underneath it. And she saw what he was about to do. And she said, it's hot, don't touch it. So you know what he did. He reached out and grabbed it. He lifted it up and dropped it real quick. She said, was it hot? He said, no, it just didn't take long to look at it. (laughs) (laughs) Do you know anybody like that? Anybody in your house like that? Anyway. We probably need to stop there. But her command, her command to him was not irrelevant. It wasn't arbitrary. It fit life. When you heat up cast iron, the whole thing gets hot. So mama says, don't touch it. It's hot because if you do, you're going to run the risk of injuring your hand. It's relevant to life. The same is true for these commands of God. It's kind of like teaching a teenager how to drive. You don't show them the brake for no reason. You don't tell them to turn on the blinker for no reason. You don't encourage them the first time out to drive 25 miles an hour below the speed limit for no reason. You don't put them in the mall parking lot or the church parking lot to have them drive around for a while for no particular reason. There's a reason why you don't take them on the loop the first day. There's a reason why you you keep them off of I-85. Not that it's dangerous, it's a parking lot, and there's no driving that takes place there. But you understand, (laughs) these commands are not 
irrelevant. They are profoundly relevant. Listen, when God gives you a command, ladies and gentlemen, He is commanding something as real, and nobody knows life better than God. He came on this earth and He lived it perfectly in Jesus Christ. He knows life. He knows life. So we submit in faith to the commands of God. That's what we do when we're about to meet in Esau. Well, listen, I've not done that. I'm facing an Esau. I haven't done any of this. What do I do? Well, I've got hope for you. If you've listened to this point, there's hope. If you can repent and trust Christ, there's hope for you. If, if in your heart you can repent or reject what keeps you from Jesus Christ and trusting Him, and if you can trust His death and resurrection on the cross, there's hope. God can cleanse it and make it as if you never failed Him. He will love you and treat you with the grace and kindness that He treats Jesus Christ with. He wants you in on that. Acts 26, 20 says that Paul preached repentance towards God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Hey, that evening I came to the conclusion I wasn't playing baseball professionally or in college. That's what I did. It broke my heart and I felt so foolish. At the moment I thought, I have put all my hope in this and I've put lots of money into improving my skills and here it's not going to happen. One day I'll tell you the story of how I came to that conclusion. But once I realized I was pursuing my own dream, I also realized I was not pursuing God's will in my life. And I knew better. I'd been to church enough at Lamore First Southern Baptist Church in the middle school and high school Sunday school class enough to know Jesus was to be number one. And I was to love, long for, and live the will of God in my life. And so the moment I realized that I'd been living my own life and my own dream and in control of my life, I got on my knees beside my bed and I said, Dear God, I am sorry. I, I have done what I wanted to do. I've not, I've not uh, embraced what you wanted me to do. Please forgive me. I want Jesus to come into my heart and life. I, I believe in the cross and resurrection. These are almost exactly the words I said. And I give my life to you and I'll do whatever you want me to do. That changed everything the day I met my Esau. And he came into my life just like he promised. He said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone open the door and let me in, I will dine with him and he with me. I will fellowship with him and he with me. He came in, into my heart and life by faith and became the master of the control center of my life. Man, I got up off my knees and that night or the next night I began to read my Bible and God unfolded that word to me. And he began to show me how the Bible would solve many of the challenges and relationship challenges I was facing. And in my prayers, I felt connected to God. I'd never felt connected to him before. I began to tell people about that night and the change that had come over me. And I was amazed. They were more amazed. Not what they expected from me. The same human body, but a different person inside. I began to enjoy going to church. I began participating and enjoyed participating in the Word. And... Soon after that, God began to direct me with what to do with my life, where to go to school, and eventually who to marry and how to raise children. And he's guided every step of the way because when I met an Esau, I turned to him. And you are surrounded by dozens of people this morning who've done the exact same thing. And today's your day. Today's the day you come to Christ because you're meeting an Esau. We want to give you the opportunity to do that. Let me ask you, can you change your mind? 
Can you change your mind about your life and your eternity? Can you change your mind about Jesus Christ, that he's not just some um, incidental figure, but he's to be the master of your life? Can you change your mind to that? Can you start believing the cross is your only hope and that Jesus rose from the dead? Can you call on him in sincere faith and open your heart to live for him from this day on? If you can, there's hope for you, and we're going to do it right now. Let's talk to God and let's pray, would you? Father in heaven, I thank you for the good news of the gospel of Christ. And I want to pray for friends today that they'll say yes to Jesus.